Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism. And now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Okay, we're going to dive into uh, some philosophy today as it relates to capitalism. And I have an incredible individual that's on with me today. His name is David Morgan, and he is an economist, a precious metals expert, a writer, and the publisher of the Morgan Report. So, David, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for asking. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, David, you know, I thought I'd start off because of your, you know, expertise as it relates to precious metals, but how your perspective about the tenets of capitalism is maybe slightly different as an expert in precious metals than maybe someone with an economics degree. Well, I'm just going to kind of go through a stream of consciousness. I've thought about, you know, what you asked. So, First of all, I adhere to pretty much the Mises Institute. So that's the Mises, M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G, if you're interested. And there is a huge book called Capitalism that you can get, actually, I think you can download it or get the PDF for free off of the Mises Institute's website. I have the hard copy. But there's a lot of critics about capitalism, and I would say justifiably so. But every system that's been tried, nothing succeeds like capitalism. So first of all, you have to define it. And I'm not sure this is a textbook definition, but basically it's laissez-faire of the free market. And there's a lot of people that say, well, with the free market, you know, anything can happen. You have to have rules, you have to have regulations, you have to have regulators. Without this, you're gonna have complete chaos. And you can't legislate honesty. I mean, you can legislate it, but you can't do anything but enforce it. In other words, the market itself is the purveyor of right, wrong, and good, bad, and that type of thing. So what do I mean? In a free market, the idea is, the sound principle is, that if I create something, I can benefit myself, because well, capitalists are selfish, yes and no. In true capitalism, or idealized capitalism, I invent something because I've got this idea that's gonna save me time and energy, and it works. And now my neighbors come over and say, you know what, that's so awesome. I want one of those. And so you build one for them and you trade, you barter, let's say. That's true capitalism. So real capitalism, or as I said, idealized capitalism, I am benefiting myself and society at large. So this is the free market. Now, I'm going to expand from this idea. So let's say in the real world, that's the idealized world, we have a situation where there's competition with capitalism. So if I invent something and it works and I start to have a market and I get my neighbors involved and they all like it. And when the other neighbor says, you know, that's a great idea, but I know how to make that better. And he does. Then basically I'm more or less out of business or theoretically I'm out of business because my idea has been made better and away we go. So the market itself has determined, well, this is a better product. Now, I want to take that theme and explore it a little bit. I'm going to use something to show my age, which I don't have a problem doing. But if you go way back into, you know, the early days of self-entertainment, meaning the television, but then this thing came out called the VCR, where you could actually get a movie and play it on your own TV. Well, there were actually two main thrusts there. There was the VHS and there was Betamax. Now, Betamax was a far superior system than the VHS. 
But in capitalism, if you had pure capitalism, the Betamax probably would have won out. But in our society, we have something called advertising. So if you can advertise something that might be inferior, but convince the majority or the consumer that your product is better for a variety of reasons, you can actually have an inferior product take over the market, which is what happened with the VHS. So just using an example because it's one that hits close to home because I was all for the Betamax, but when I went to buy one, the salesperson was nice enough to tell me, don't, it's not going to happen. It's going to go the other way. So I want to point out some flaws in capitalism. Now let's go to where, let's say, there are people out there that only think of profit and only are greedy and basically run scams. I mean, it happens. But again, you could legislate it away and say, well, you can't do that. But in idealized capitalism, if I make a product and it's an inferior product, no one's going to buy it. So the market itself is going to give me true feedback and I'm out of business because word gets out or the product, I might think it's great, but if I think it's great and the market doesn't, it's useless. So that's where the real free market will work if it's allowed to. Now, people have this greed thing and I gave us some thought before the interview and, and this is something that's probably out there. I don't know if I'm inventing this word or not. It's probably, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but you know, I would consider it conscious capitalism. What do I mean by that? Conscious capitalism is where you actually take into the, the large picture, something like the Native Americans or the Chinese purportedly, where you're looking out, you know, four or five generations. You're saying, you know, if I build this product like this, is this to the highest and best good of all involved? And so I'm going to take off on that thing, and hopefully you can follow my train of thought. So in most of our today's capitalism, there's built-in obsolescence, okay? So you have an automobile, a washing machine, a refrigerator, whatever. A lot of these products could be made better, meaning that they don't have to have built-in obsolescence. I mean, it's possible, you know, an automobile is not a good example, but a refrigerator, washing machine, those type of things, they can be built to last 30, 40 years fairly easily. And of course, they're machines and they can break down and need repairs. But overall, let me just stick to the point, built-in obsolescence, morally correct or morally incorrect? It's a tough question. In our view of capitalism, well, look, if I build this VHS tape player and it only lasts five years, then I've got to market every five years because people are going to go back and get a newer one. And I have my business model so that I stay in business. But if you're a conscious capitalist and say, well, you know what? I'm building this thing that's going to be so good this is going to last a lifetime. So you have to build it one time. And that's a much better use of resources. So this is more conscious capitalism, what I'm driving at, where you think it through like, you know what? And this is, and I'm going to take it on a tangent if you don't mind, but this is more where the millennials are going with the minimalist idea that, you know, I only need one of these things. I don't need 12. I only need, you know, one set of dishes. I only need one set of glassware. I only need one set of coffee mugs. And I like that idea because we, speaking to society at large, have become brainwashed or the propaganda has got us to such a degree that we, rather than take, and they said philosophical, take what we need, we're constantly taught what we want. Well, want can never really be satisfied because you always want the next iPhone. And you're taught this. It's not necessarily if you're, you know, in your heart of hearts, you may actually realize it doesn't matter 
the function's the same. There's not much difference between my six and the 10. I've got a six and I don't want to upgrade it. But that's the idea. So we're kind of built into this obsolescence, consume, 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 whatever I've got, there's a better one coming out and I must have it. And these ideas really are not necessarily capitalistic ideas. They're more bent on the propaganda machine from Mr. Bernays and teaching people what they think they should think rather than actually use what I call conscious capitalism. So I've said a mouthful. I'm sure you probably got some ideas to throw back at me. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what I just went over. Yeah, I do. So I'd first, you know, I would say the premise of just humanity, right, is that we have fallibility, right? We make mistakes, we make wrong calls, we have a unique perspective. Everybody has a different perspective of the world. And, you know, we operate off of that. But it doesn't mean that the other person's perspective. And so I look at capitalism and, and, you know, the framework itself is like the exploration of what you think and figuring out a way to to do well, to, you know, appease that self-interest, right, by exchanging with others. And so I think, you know, equally as capitalism can create a lot of wealth, it equally could destroy wealth, right? Because a person, you know, may have a right idea, but they bring that idea to the marketplace. And to them, it was a good idea, but nobody else makes the same. So I think capitalism goes both ways, right? And it really appeals to both sides of humanity, right? Our side, which is brilliant and it can bring value, but also in the process of trying to figure that out, when we do fail, it has to equally support that. And so as I've thought through this concept and thought through some of the things that you're saying, right, is that in the end, we have to believe that. We have to believe that there's going to be success and there's going to be failure. But ultimately, as you brought up laissez-faire capitalism, it's one of those things where the equality is essentially the equal protection of individual rights, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I think capitalism is definitely confused. There's multiple definitions, right? And it depends on who you're asking. Like Warren Buffett has a definition for it. Everybody has all their definitions of it, right? But fundamentally, I think it's pretty simple if people would actually take time to research it. And it's the understanding that we as humans have shortcomings and we also have this notion of self-interest, right? And it's figuring out what is the right system in order for those tendencies and instincts to operate. And that's where I go to, whether it's uh, Mises and there's a lot of other, you know, that fall in the Austrian school, but there's also the Chicago school too, that really, I think, understood some of the primary fundamentals of capitalism. I don't know. It's just one of those things where, is it reasonable to expect that that system would work today as it was assumed to work a hundred years ago, just because of how much perception says we've progressed? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's been corrupted so much. I mean, right now, most of the what we call capitalism is crony capitalism. So rather than go out and let the best product win in a real free market where there's competition, they have like, let's say, defense contracts is a good example where it's basically favoritism and political infighting and who's got the best lobbyists in Washington, D.C. to get a given contract on a given weapons program. It might be an inferior product. But in real capitalism, rather than the government funding even the uh, startup or the initial, let's say, piece of equipment or piece of hardware, the entrepreneur would have to go out and get funds one way or the other. Or maybe they had a big success and had a lot of capital, like Howard Hughes, and they want to make something. So they have it within their own means to create something new. And then there's someone else that's a competitor that raises funds. And then the market would decide which is the best. You know, you basically do like a foot race as a metaphor. This piece of hardware versus that piece of hardware, which one functions the best, which one has the longest life, which one is easier to repair, and on and on. But we don't have this anymore. 
we have a very small amount of it. There is some true free market capitalism in existence, yes, but it's really rare. Most of this stuff now, especially when you get government bigger and bigger and bigger, has to do with who you know, and this is called crony capitalism. So it's who you know, it's what political cloud, it's your district, it's, well, we've never gotten funds for this, we should give it to them because they need to bring up their standard of living in this part of this district of this town of this state and on and on it goes and it all sounds well-meaning but it doesn't serve everybody to the highest and greatest good because the highest greatest good is one capitalism and its real free market form and the market determining who's right and wrong as you said i've often said i remember one of my earliest interviews i ever did on the internet is capitalism it guarantees the right to succeed and the right to fail and that's part of the process and, you know, if you go with, and I'm going to pick on Elon Musk, and I like him. I think he's, I don't know him. I've seen him on TV and the internet and heard him speak. And he's obviously quite brilliant. But, you know, what I'm going to pick on is Tesla. I mean, if Tesla was a true free market where he wasn't subsidized, it would have failed by now. And I'm going to add on to that. You can have a great idea who's ahead of its time, which means that you can have this electric vehicle with Tesla Motors. And you just can't raise the capital and you just can't make it profitable. And fortunately or unfortunately, capitalism is based on a profit motive. That's just the way it is. So if you don't profit, then you're basically out of business. But now we have crony capitalism, subsidies, whatever. So he gets pushed. We need electric vehicles. He's great. It's wonderful. We're going to subsidize. So let me come back. I kind of missed my second point, which is, he may have been ahead of his time where it wasn't profitable at that time, goes back to the drawing board and says, you know what? I created a luxury car and it's too expensive. So if I'm going back and I'm going to reinvent this thing. I've already got the basics. I'm going to go and I'm going to make the Volkswagen of, you know, the Beetle, the initial Volkswagen of the EV market. And that's going to be my initial Tesla product. And comes back out and the market's, holy moly, this thing is only... 13,000 bucks. Are you kidding me? I've got to have, you know, so what I'm trying to equate, I'm not trying to pick on Tesla, but everyone's familiar with it. So they can understand what I'm saying and get a picture in their mind that this is the idea of real free market capitalism. So he might've failed temporarily gone back. So what does the market really need? Does it really want these super awesome? And I've been in them. They are awesome. I mean, I, you know, but is that what the market needs? Mm -hmm. What if the market needed a $17,000 EV that's got a 200 mile range and everybody loved it. And that's what the market needed. And the market comes out, holy moly. And he's only making, let's make up a number, 1500 bucks per vehicle, but he's selling 12 million the first year. You know what I mean? I'd like your feedback on that. No, I mean, there's two thoughts I have, right? And the first one is I agree with you, right? It's like you look at, you know, whether it's Amazon who is putting retailer after retailer after retailer out of business or it's Tesla right? That's completely disrupting the auto market. But the thing is, it's like those markets were already kind of manipulated, right? Because you go back and look at how much GM has suffered through the years and how much political clout that they've built and spent and built and spend, like that cycle goes on forever. You, you know, the unionization, how that has affected certain things. You know, it's interesting. It's just like, yeah. And the point I'm trying to make, the second point is like our whole system we still have kind of these elements of capitalism, but the whole system is not based on it. The system seems to have been based on this cycle, right? Which I think academia is part of it because you have funding for academia, which bids up prices of tuition. 
You have students that are trained to be workers because of how our school system is set up based on the Prussian system. Then you have the government that's involved at local levels, federal levels in pretty much everything as far as who they'll fund and what will they'll subsidize or what they'll back, right? So it's kind of like this entire system has been based on that vicious cycle. And because of the capital markets, whether it's the leverage by the Federal Reserve or leverage because of loose lending standards, right? You have a whole system that's based on these fundamentals, which isn't capitalism. But still, I look at some of the fundamentals of capitalism very well would have prevented a lot of what we're experiencing right now, which I think there's a lot of good stuff, but there's also some things to be really concerned about. And that's what you know, I'm trying to figure out where we haven't had necessarily sound money for 50 years since you know, 71, I believe. And then also we really have never had capitalism. So knowing that, what do we do? What do we do with that? How do we understand what's right, what's wrong? How do we understand what we do to live a fulfilling life? And that's where you know, I look at the study of economics and the study of capitalism, free market system. It's being aware of what those principles are because a lot of the unintended consequences, a lot of the damage hasn't occurred yet based on some of how our economy works, but it's ultimately going to occur. Whether it's one fell swoop or whether it's in pieces, it's still going to happen. And so I think like the awareness of these principles will allow people to understand what to do when a lot of the chaos starts. Because in the past, what has ultimately been done? It's, well, government should take care of it. I'm not responsible for that. They should take care of it. They're smarter than me or that's their role. Other than that, I look at what capitalism was as far as you know the intention and the principles around it and what we have today. And I think there's some stark differences. But at the same time, you know, the notion of capitalism is still very much alive in everybody because it's part of our instincts, right? Exactly. Well, one of the fundamental principles of capitalism is property rights. And you have the right to your own body. You have the right to make a living. So let's just go to a real baseline example. So let's just say we're somewhere in the 1800s and you can just own land by staking it, for example. And you go out and you build a cabin for shelter. And that's just all by your own labor. Now, do you own that or not? Well, in capitalism, of course you do. With your labor, with your ingenuity, you designed it either your head or on a piece of paper or both, and you made it. And that's wealth. You took something that was raw, which was land and trees, and converted it into something more meaningful and of higher value. And that's an example of property rights. And without that, capitalism breaks down. And the idea that, well, you made it, but I need it more than you do, so I'm moving in, you go build another one. Well, this is absolutely <laughs> fundamentally an athema to capitalism, but this is the idea of socialism is that, well, you know, each according to their needs, well, I need it more than you do because I can't work and you can, or I'm too old to build one. And so I get it, you don't, and tough. You know, that's the way, this is equal, this is fair, this is what's right. Of course, this is a concoction of the mind is what's fair and what's right. I mean, and again, you know, to harp on, the, on it, the real capitalism is determined by basically competition and by the ability of someone to, or some ones, you know, companies, corporations, or whatever. So that's a bit of an example. But coming back to, you know, you brought in sound money. So I think we can take a tangent on that. So what happens when these systems break down? And this is not unusual. I want to assure everyone that there's cycles through the monetary system that's happened again and again and again. So we're in a situation now where certain times in history, 
you have the fundamental philosophy breaks down. And the fundamental philosophy is trust. What can we trust? Can we trust these big corporations to do what they say? Can we trust the government to do what it says? Can I trust my company to provide me the pension that has promised me? Can I trust the city to pay me the pension that has promised me? And so what happens in a corrupt system, which we're now in and have been for quite some time, is the trust starts to be questioned. And first by the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, whatever. I'm not trying to differentiate. People are different, let's face it. And yeah. Some are deeper thinkers. Some look ahead. Some don't. Some don't care. Some think the government should take care of it. I don't have to worry about it. The company should do it. I don't, you know, I'll work for you. All I have to do is collect my check, blah, 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 blah. But you cannot overcome Mother Nature. I mean, there's Mother Nature in the marketplace. Yep. And the more you distort the marketplace, the more you're going to have a price to pay. And again, this is cyclical. This isn't something that's just unique to our generation. So the trust breaks down. The confidence breaks down. Well, the whole system is based on confidence, and the whole system is a lie. Because the idea is you can't print wealth. And you can't. If you could print wealth, Zimbabwe would be the richest country in the world. And everyone would be down to Zimbabwe because they've printed themselves the wealthiest nation on the planet. Mm -hmm. But America pretends that you still can print wealth. And we've been doing it for a long time. And we've gotten away with it because of the reserve currency of the world. We basically have forced our currency on everyone else that must accept it. And people that must accept it, of course, use it because it works still to some degree. But at the top, what Mises calls the crack-up boom, more and more people in the marketplace start to question what is the viability? What's the long-term confidence that I have in this piece of paper, in this idea, in this unit, in this thing in my account? And that starts to break down. And it's already breaking down. In fact, it broke down to such a degree in 2008. We were really a cat's whisker away from having a complete financial collapse. Yep. Most people don't believe that. I'm not saying it to gain points or to scare people, but it is the truth. And I think most people are unaware of actually how close we actually came to a complete collapse. And the reason I say complete collapse is because when the banks give up the trust of each other, which had happened, then the whole system would freeze. As uh, Jim Rickard says, the ice nine situation, he used the metaphor where everything freezes up. And we're very close to that. The only reason we didn't freeze up because it was starting to happen. The ice was starting to freeze. It was starting to take off. And the Fed was intervened and said, well, Bank A don't trust Bank B's paper. Bank B doesn't trust Bank A's paper. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to buy all this worthless crap, which is the truth of the matter. And they might not have said that publicly this bank A paper and this bank B paper, we're going to give you treasuries for it, the most trusted paper out there. And that kept the system from freezing up. But we got very close. So the next time, will the Fed be able to intervene and paper it over and make it better and all that? And the answer is no one really knows. I don't know. You don't know. No one knows. But the game is getting very near the end. And the main thing to watch, of course, is the bond market or the debt markets, the credit markets. Do you trust that dollar? to be worth enough in the future for you to loan it today for a given period of six months, two years, five years, 10 years, 30 years. So it's breaking down. And yet the system really isn't allowed to function as a free market would. In a free market or a true capitalistic system, the right to succeed means the right to fail. So the bond market, I believe, I'll just put it on me, 
that would fail. And these bonds would be marked to market. They might not go to zero, but they would certainly be worth less than the face value almost across the board. And this, of course, isn't allowed to happen because the powers that be are able to basically buy up their own debt. The Fed could come in and buy up their own bonds and issue currency for it and keep the game going. But eventually, again, it gets to the point where enough of the market says, you know, I don't trust what that dollar is going to be worth in the future. And so now what I'm going to do is spend it today for something that's a hard asset that I know I can maintain value and I'm going to off these dollars. I want to get rid of them because I'm not sure what they're going to buy a month from now or a year from now. And this takes place over and over throughout the world. I mean, it's happened in Argentina. It's happened in Venezuela. It's happened all over the place. And, you know, there's so many times it's happened. And, of course, the idea that it can't happen in the United States or the world currency, really, the U.S. dollar, is preposterous. Actually, it is happening. Most people don't recognize it. So that's what we see. Philosophically, it's a loss of confidence, a loss of trust. And once that's lost, it's very difficult to get it back. And so one of the points I was making to you before we started recording was this notion of, of accountability, right? And I think that's what you're saying when it comes to trust, right? Because part of that human ailment, right, we have is some people don't tell the truth and some people, you know, do it consciously, some, you know, omission and commission. So it's one of those ideas where, okay, what is the standard way to protect everyone? And it's to have something that really doesn't attach to a human being that can be used as a unit of accountability. And that's where, you know, precious metals, I think, come in because, you know, it's very fundamentally, right, very difficult to manipulate. You can't, you know, just create gold out of nothing. So, or silver out of of nothing. So that's, I think, the fundamental premise. But, you know, we're way beyond that now. Okay. And we're in this, you know, environment where, yeah, the United States is that kind of beacon of trust when it comes to any financial exchange around the world. And whether it's because we're the reserve currency or whether because military force or whether it's our influence on goods and so forth, but it allows, you know, making sanctions on other countries. It allows us to throw weight around. But in the end, it's the fallible unit of trust, what we have right now. And that's why, you know, I was curious to understand, you know, your perspective, understanding precious metals at a very deep level, right? How you balance that with what our current system is, which is operating around the same thing in a sense, like trust, that's where the accountability is. At the same time, it's not a completely objective trust. Does that make sense? It does. I want to hold that thought. I'll come to it, Patrick, but you did a great job on, you know, why the dollar still remains where it is, is it military forces? And one thing I'd add to that is the rule of law, because you know, other nation states don't necessarily operate in the same standards that the United States, I'll say, used to. Great point. Yeah. And the reason is that the rule of law is really breaking down. I mean, a contract, the reason there's you know, the legal system in a lot of ways is due to business and a contract. And if you didn't meet the contract, then there's a legal remedy. But that also is breaking down. Coming back, yeah, you're exactly right. So the loss of confidence goes to what can I have confidence in that will see me through financially? And the answer there is primarily gold. I mean, gold has stood the test of time for thousands of years, ups, downs, and in-betweens, and the value does vary. But nonetheless, it never goes to zero, and it's always coveted, especially in times like these where we're unsure of what that dollar is going to buy, you know, a year out, 10 years out, whatever. And so you've seen, you know, the banking system actually had the largest purchase of gold last year that they've had, I think, 11 years or something. It was a massive amount 
that they purchased relative to what their purchase has been in the past. Mm -hmm. And the public is kind of burnt out on the gold story, I think. I mean, gold went higher year over year for 11 years straight. You know, that's a pretty darn good bull market. But that peaked out in 2011. And here we are eight years later, and it's been going sideways to down, found a bottom, I believe. And a lot of even the gold bugs kind of given up. And the thing about gold is, I think, a really big misunderstanding about it. And here's the idea that I have, and it's pretty simple. One is you buy gold and you sleep better and you forget about it. You just own it because you know in times like these, it's a must if you can afford it. But the other part is you buy it because you want capital gains. You want to have a better life. You want to see the price appreciation so good relative to when you bought it that you can basically improve your lifestyle. And so there's really two types of gold purchases. One is, and this is just written about by Hugo Salinas Price, by the way, but you have people that really understand gold that buy some enough for their protection, which, you know, is generally thought to be five to 10% of your overall net worth. It could be the smallest too. It's basically what makes you comfortable Mm -hmm. and forget about it. But that is not the vast majority. Those are the true gold bugs. And most of those people don't consider them gold bugs. They consider themselves, I guess, smart enough to understand the nature of fiat money to hedge. But the vast majority are looking to trade it or swap it or, you know, whatever, make these big gains on it. And when gold doesn't perform within a certain time frame, then they're very disappointed. Silver is even a different story. Silver, as Professor Jastrom called it, the restless metal. As he wrote that book, he looked at silver's relationship to commodities over a vast period of time, like he did with the golden constant when he looked at gold in the same manner. And what he determined was that gold basically is the ultimate money. And regardless of conditions, especially during uh, depressions, gold was the best asset you could own. Silver was mixed. Some of the time during the depression, silver actually did well. Sometimes during depressions, it didn't. But silver, the conclusion of the book was during inflationary times, nothing outperformed silver. So we saw that take place when QE2 was announced. When QE1 took place, the market sort of acknowledged, well, we probably need it. We saved the banking system. We're going to get back on track. But when QE2 was announced, most of the people that are monetary savvy said, oh my goodness, here comes the inflation. And it was. QE is just (laughs) quantitative easing means money printing. The problem was that all those savvy people, and yours truly included, and I traded that market and did very well, but none of that money, none of that QE hit Main Street. It only went to Wall Street. So basically it was static money. It was sterile. It was there, but it was all printed. It just went to a vault and stayed there. It didn't circulate. It had no velocity. It didn't have any meaning in the marketplace. And once that was made clear to the market, the price of silver basically crashed because most of us, and again, myself included, thought when it was announced that we'd see the velocity of money increase, we'd see it hit Main Street, and it didn't. And that's been the story ever since. So a lot of forces going back and forth. But the idea that I think is the best that I can give to the public at large is, you know, take the attitude of someone that buys gold or silver or both with a comfortable amount and just go about your life. And you can pretend that we're not going to have a financial collapse. 
I think we will. I think it'll occur in my lifetime. But you don't want to harp on it. You don't want to live your life thinking about it. I mean, basically, yep. all you need to do is be hedged. But most people that learn this think, one, it's going to happen. It's almost imminent. And that the only asset class to own is this one. And that's really poor thinking. I mean, energy is a very important asset to own. And, you know, if you're really capitalist as far as, you know, where can I put my money and make money with it? What is the one thing that's gone on from, you know, 3500 BC? Well, there's been 14,000 wars since there has. So if you really want to invest, buy defense stocks, buy Lockheed. I mean, the war machine continues. This as Chris Grain calls it the death and debt paradigm, and he's correct. And unfortunately, you know, that is the real world that we live in. So I'll like your feedback. Yeah, I mean, I look at the complexity of the world we live in, and it's interesting. I would say at the same time, you look at how concerned you could be by looking at debtclock.org. You, know, you look at that, and it's like, oh, crap, like this thing's going to pop tomorrow. But you also look just at you know humanity, right, and how much they've taken ideas and done some just brilliant things with it. And it's one of those things where I, I think that's always been the case with humans. There's always been good stuff that's going on. There's always been you know, some bad stuff, right? And so it's really trying to figure out how to keep a balance of it. And right now, just as much as there's a lot of ways to be concerned, there's also a lot that can be celebrated to an extent. And that's where, you know, I've stood back and I've said, you know, I don't know what the future is going to hold. I love your point about trust. I think that people, right, especially in times of difficulty, will seek trust, right? Whatever that is, <laughs> you know, but they'll seek something that they trust, right? Because somebody or some group of somebody's uh, failed them and did things that weren't trustworthy. So they'll seek trust. But in the end, you know, it's just an awareness of how people work. It's also an awareness of what principles are. And I think there's some principles. Well, I know that there's some principles to capitalism that still are extremely relevant today when it comes to personal freedom, personal capitalism, which is taking who you are, what you know, and doing something with it that's of, of value to somebody else. And looking at a free market, if that is claimed, you know, you definitely want to be aware of questions to ask and a good foundation of knowledge so that you know what they're talking about because there's so many different definitions of capitalism. But in the end, I look at just it being an incredible time to, to be alive. And it's understanding that, yeah, I mean, when you go against principle, I don't know, there's probably some sayings around when truth or principle is followed and what the result is going to be, it's probably a million of them. I just none come to mind. It's going to come home to roost, right? These are decisions that are unprincipled and they're decisions that have to have a price paid for them because failure means loss. And right now there's lots of different failure being papered over, whether it's QE, whether it's what the Fed's done, whether it's just government policy in general. But right now there's a lot of failure being deferred. And so it's being aware of how to position yourself, both from a business standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a money standpoint, so that when those corrections happen, you know what to do. You're not operating out of scarcity and emotion. You're operating out of awareness and knowledge. And I think that's the most that we can do in the end. Right. Well, maybe we do a little bit more uh, philosophy. I mean, the idea of the founding of the nation, we can work capitalism into it. And the idea of property rights that we already discussed is the rights of the individual. And so in a republic, in a constitutional republic, the rights of the individual are protected. So a democracy actually comes from the word mobocracy, which is mob rule. So the majority rules. But in a constitutional republic, the rights of the individual are preserved. 
So that's very, very key in the way that the system was set up initially, because that protects someone to have the right to not only free speech, but free thinking and motivations based on their own personal goals. And again, if in an idealistic world, if you have an idea and make something of value to you and the market says we want it to, you can become rich. And there's nothing wrong with that, at least from my perspective. So the whole thing has been usurped and corrupted by such a degree now that people don't even really seem to understand how the system could work. I mean, if you go back to the financial failure of 2008, I mean, in real capitalism, all those banks that were over leveraged would have failed. You know, not only Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, but many others. In fact, AIG would have failed. AIG that insured all of these CDOs and all these swaps and everything else that was out there in this derivative never, never land couldn't actually make good on it. And so, again, the backing of full faith credit means that everybody that's taxpaying person in the United States is responsible. Well, why are they responsible for a bank's failure? The bank should be held accountable. So it comes back to your accountability. And so who's accountable? Well, let's make the people accountable. And this is what most people don't even understand. They don't have a clue. They think the government actually produces something. The government produces misery most of the time. The reason it's misery is because the failure of those institutions are put on the backs of the people. It was subsidized by you if you're a U.S. taxpaying person. You're the one that's paying for that failure. It's not the government paying for it. You are. But this is a concept that most people don't even get in school. I mean, it's not, I don't think it's even taught anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it comes to accountability. Well, who's accountable? Well, if you go run up your credit card, Patrick, and you can't pay it, then it's your right to put it on your uncle because after all, that's the way the system works. He's more capable of paying it than you are. So let's just swap it over to him. I mean, that's basically what's taking place. But most people are so undereducated, I guess I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm not here to sugarcoat it either. So you're responsible. Well, why are you responsible? You shouldn't be. The bank should be held accountable, but they're not. And this is one of the biggest problems with the system at large. And this is why, you know, once the distrust in the currency goes to the next level and the velocity of money starts to pick up where people rather own a jar of peanut butter that they know that you know, it's good. And I see inflation at a much higher level. Many do. I mean, John Williams, I have him on my mastermind series about once a year and I read his work. And, you know, I mean, the hamburger index and everything else, I'm going off on down a rabbit trail. I'll let you bring me back, Patrick. But I mean, you know, I'm not a big fast food guy. I try to eat healthy most of the time. But hey, look, occasionally I do it. And I went into, I won't name it, but a well known fast food and it wasn't McDonald's. I'll say that much. People hate me if I, but it's one, maybe level up. I don't know. Anyway, here's my point. Just a basic meal is like 12 bucks in there. I couldn't believe it. It's been such a long time since I've been into one of those places. And I thought, I misheard the guy. I thought I ordered two meals. <laughs> but this is real inflation. This is what you know, mom and pop in America are facing. So I think the inflation rate really is squeezing a lot of people. And I think it's evident across the board, really. You're right, but here's the thing. It's like nobody knows what that means, right? They see higher prices, they hear the word inflation, but they have no idea how it's created and why it occurs. It's not like a natural phenomenon. Right. right? I mean, it's like 
why aren't prices going down? Isn't that a good thing? But yet prices are going up. I mean, just the fundamental question around why is Fed policy for things to become 3% more expensive every year? <laughs> it's like, why is it be 3% less expensive? But you know, I was in Walgreens the other day to renew my passport or whatever. But you know, this lady, older woman at the counter and she was buying makeup and she's like, she's stuttering. She didn't know what to do. And she's like, I just can't afford it. And she didn't pay for the makeup. She paid for some other thing. So it's one of those like people are experiencing it, but they're not aware of what it is and why it's occurring. And that again goes to everything that we've been talking about, which is the current monetary policy, right, is fundamentally flawed and it's not trustworthy, but yet people are trusting it. And that's when I would say that when the pain is too much, that's when people start. It's not going to be this like slow process. It's going to be like, holy crap. You know, everyone's buying stuff and exchanging and it goes really quick. But it's one of those things where, you know, awareness is really the only thing that you can control and influence is your awareness, your knowledge, your understanding of how the system works. And then when things start to happen, you know how to respond to that, not react. Right. And that's, you know, I think one of my main jobs for the public good, and I mean, public good on a global basis is just to teach these principles so people have an understanding and then they can go and make take an action or not take an action, but at least they can explore it. And they don't have to take my word for anything. Look it up, do your own research, do some reading, look at the great inflations of the past. But there's so little awareness. That's the reason there's such a small market for the gold and silver markets, because most people have no idea that they preserve wealth and they're a financial asset for thousands of years. I mean, if that was well known, you'd have a lot different percentage into those metals than you have now. In fact, I did a, one of my most popular videos called Myths in the Silver Market. And so one of my pet peeves I said in the video was this idea of most of the coin dealers or precious metals dealers that you will talk to, especially those that are more, let's say a little more establishment than I am, will tell you, well, I think everyone should own a little. So this goes back to the idea we talked about a moment ago that I said, you know, I think everyone should own a little. But what people don't understand is how few people actually take action. So in that example on this video, I said at the time, the mining activity was roughly 700 million ounces a year on the silver market. And the population in the United States was like, I rounded it up to like 350. So I could do the math in my head. So. If everyone in the United States owned two ounces of silver, which is very little, you know, it's 30 bucks worth, right? It's not going to change your life. Two ounces of silver, believe it or not, if it goes to 100 bucks, won't change your life. If it goes to 1,000 bucks, yeah, it might change a little bit, but it's not changing your life, but it's a little amount. So if everyone in the United States bought two ounces of silver, it would take up the entire mine supply on an annual basis. And the United States is only 5% of the world's population. So if we include everyone, like the other 95% of the people on the planet should own a little, right? There's not enough silver for everyone to own a little, is my point. And yet so few people own it or understand it. And it doesn't have to be silver, but silver is a good example. It's my specialty, and I enjoy a lot of aspects of mm -hmm. the silver market. But this is the idea. And... If you go back to 1980 at the top, most of us think that the amount of gold in portfolios was roughly two, maybe 3%. And today it's about a half a percent. So if we just went back to the 2%, we need a fourfold increase in the amount of gold demand that we have right now. 
And think about that. Just think if there was, you know, fourfold increase in the demand for gold. 400% increase. Where would that put the price? Well, this has been fascinating, Dave. I know we could probably keep going on all of this. And I look at you as an expert in a certain field that I think historically has been pertinent to understanding money in general. And, you know, looking at where we're at today, I'm sure you're just as surprised as I am, right? Because the more you learn about how the monetary system works, the more you learn about business cycles, you know, especially if you understand about the Austrian business cycle, okay, which, you know, shows that the, the central bank is at the hub of financial, you know, collapses or financial corrections. We're well beyond what is reasonable, but at the same time, we're still kicking along every day. And, you know, and that's where, I think the future is going to be bright, but also the future is going to be very volatile. I think because of the you know technology that's coming online. I also think because of just how connected the world is becoming, how many people are joining the internet and becoming connected in emerging markets, especially. So it's going to be interesting just to see how things transpire. But I still cling to my understanding of financial principles, monetary principles, in essence. And even though they may not be the clearinghouse right now, it's a deferment of what should be clearing right now. And if you understand that, I think you're going to understand what those signs are when things start to get volatile. I also step back and say, you know, that could be totally wrong. Who knows? They can maybe come up with some new principles. <laughs> I don't, we don't have time to talk about it today, but the modern monetary theory is just like absurd. It's like people are advocating something that just doesn't make any sense. But in the end, it's like, what can you do? And it's becoming aware, becoming educated, as you mentioned. So with that being said, I'll give you the final word. And then would you mind giving out your contact information, your website, your YouTube channel, uh, social media, so that we can post those in the show notes and then people can start following you? Sure. Yeah, final thought. I really don't know what to say. I mean, first of all, money is important, but you don't have to make it the center of your life. You know, most people think about it almost constantly, especially if you don't have enough. But it is just part of life. And there's probably a better system out there, but as it stands now, there's nothing better than a true free market capitalism. It's been proven over and over again. And where are we going to go in the future is very interesting because, as you said, with this modern market theory, which is preposterous, but I have to say, with the advent of the digital currencies, which is basically everything that's on your Visa or credit card, and the advent of the cryptocurrencies, I mean, it's not inconceivable to think that you could create more something out of nothing ad infinitum and keep this thing going a lot longer. So I've certainly open-minded enough to see that that's a possibility. I think it's unlikely, but unlikely doesn't mean impossible. So I'll stop there. And as far as getting a hold of me, I think the best place to go is our main website, which is themorganreport.com. And if you're interested in my new project, there's a webinar that you can get for free. It's called, that's the URL is comingenergyboom.com. Again, it's not the coming, it's comingenergyboom.com. We've kind of broken it up. I think it was about an eight hour lecture between me and some of my colleagues. But I think they've got it toned down about an hour and a half. As far as social media, I am on YouTube. I'm on Twitter. I do have a Facebook presence. So the best thing to do is just type in, in any search engine, David Morgan Silver. And if you type in David Morgan and the word silver, You'll find the LinkedIn, you'll find the YouTube, you'll find all of the social media. Well, David, it was an honor to have you on. Thank you again for sharing your wisdom and everything that you've studied for so many years. It's been an awesome conversation. Well, Patrick, I appreciate having the conversation. Thank you. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller, Heads I Win, Tales You Lose, A Financial Strategy 
to reignite the American dream is completely changing the way people look at saving, wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard Podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.